Well, at Good Shepherd Church, unless we're beginning a new series of studies, you pretty much know where we are if you were here in preceding weeks. This is a study that continues in this first letter of Peter, written to the saints scattered all over the place, he says, and that because of the great persecution that was sweeping the nations, those who had put faith in Christ suddenly found themselves to be the offscouring of the earth. This world is no friend to God's grace. It takes grace to receive grace and to embrace Jesus Christ for who he really is in all of his glory. The message of First Peter, I do believe with all my heart, although we're in a very different environment than our brothers and sisters in that first century, is a message clearly for our day. And so we study God's word. We are now at the fifth chapter. We've come to the fifth verse. First Peter chapter five. We're going to be reading verses five through seven and then looking at those verses in some detail. There, but for the grace of God. You know that phrase, don't you? I think if among the well-worn phrases of men through the ages, there is a particular saying that you've surely heard. You just proved that. And perhaps you have borrowed those words at times to express your own gratitude to God. I certainly nominate the phrase as being at the top of every believer's list. There but for the grace of God go I. The saying itself is far more familiar, I think, than the story of its origin. In the early 1500s, in England, one of the great reformer pastors was a man by the name of John Bradford. This was in the days of the Queen of England, Mary I. She had ascended to the throne And this woman, like so many in her day, hated everything associated with the doctrines of grace in the gospel. In fact, she earned the name Bloody Mary, since during her reign of religious persecution, she burned at the stake more than 300 preachers of the gospel. John Blanchard was one of those imprisoned in the Tower of London and would never be a free man again. During his time in prison, he continued to write religious works and preach to all who would listen. At one point, he was put in a cell with three other reformers, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, Bishop Nicholas Ridley, the same bishop who, by the way, had ordained him to the ministry, and the rather well-known Hugh Latimer. Their time together was spent in careful study of the New Testament. All four prison mates were to become martyrs. At some time during Bradford's imprisonment, Looking through the bars and the tiny window, he witnessed a group of prisoners being led to their execution. And it was he who said these words, which the others recorded along with his other writings for posterity. He said, as he saw fellow believers 
heading toward the stake. There, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. That phrase for which he is best remembered and which has survived in common parlance in its variant. There, but for the grace of God, go I. On 31 January 1555, Bradford was tried and condemned to death by Bloody Mary with all the others. He was brought to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake. We have it recorded, though he was scheduled for execution at four o'clock in the morning, the burning was actually delayed due to the large crowd that had gathered. He was chained to the stake at Smithfield with a young man, a young believer by the name of John Lease. Before the fire was lit, he begged forgiveness of any he had ever wronged in life, and he offered forgiveness to those who had wronged him, including those that were about to take his life. He subsequently turned to his partner in martyrdom, the young man, and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this very night. A writer of his period recorded that he endured the flame, and I quote, as a fresh gale of wind in a hot summer's day, confirming by his death the truth of that doctrine he had so diligently and powerfully preached during his life. End of quote. Bradford was buried at the Marian Martyrs Monument in Smithfield, London. I'd love to go and stand there someday at the grave of any number of the martyrs and thank the Lord for such heroes as those who preserved a gospel of free grace even down to this present day, where some in some parts of this world today are still being put to death for the cause of Christ. Those were days in the course of church history Really, 1500 in England, not so long ago, in a place as civilized as Britain. Nevertheless, they were days not unlike the season of persecution, which is the context we have learned of Peter's epistles and the reason that Peter is so concerned for the welfare of God's flock. More than once, I have reminded you, it was a very dangerous thing to profess faith in Christ in Peter's day. We saw in chapter 4, as though Peter is wearing his very heart on his sleeve, saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. He went on to say, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. How else can we explain what uh, Fox records of the many martyrs and their their last words of great courage and commitment, except it had to be this spirit of glory and of God resting upon them 
in their most fiery ordeal. That same grace being available to us today. My sense is that every generation of believers in Christ, in one form or another, all believers will find it a difficult thing to have to wrestle with the influences of a fallen world or to dodge the fiery darts of Satan himself. Or what of the struggle we face constantly by the fallen desires of our own sinful flesh, which constantly assert themselves and, well, they ruin our best days. There, but for the grace of God, would go the church. It is the scriptures that convince me and my own experience is a witness that were it not for the grace of God, a salvation rooted and anchored in his eternal mercies, apart from the grace of God, I do believe the church of Jesus Christ would not survive this generation, nor would she have existed these past 2,000 years. I dare say, whether you are cognizant of it or not, if you are a believer in Christ, apart from the grace of God, none of us would have made it through this past week with our faith intact. It's all of grace. The grace that can only be found in Christ and in Christ alone. It is a grace that not only saves us, we're familiar with that, but understand it is a grace which also preserves all those who have the seal of the blood of Christ upon their souls. The biblical gospel is a gospel of grace. For it is by grace, is it not? Through faith. We are saved, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. That word gift is the same word as the word grace in the New Testament. A gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, Peter's concern, as we will see in our text today, is that those uh, saved by grace suffering saints would understand That the grace which saved them is a grace they need for each day until the end of their journey. And if that is true of them, it is just as true of us. The uh, much beloved and rightly so, the much beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, I think is timeless because it is so biblically Correct, theologically true. Follow the familiar words of that with me for a moment. Newton first testifies, I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. You see, only grace could do that. It is what the better doctors of theology call effectual grace, a grace A grace that actually saves sinners. (laughs) 
the power of God unto salvation in the gospel of grace. Too many would say or understand that somehow grace only makes salvation possible. That the rest is up to the sinner to do something about his own salvation. Beloved, I want to tell you that if any part of our salvation depended upon us, we'd still be lost and we'd still be blind. But the Bible is clear that this grace of God has a power in it. This, this grace of God actually saves the sinner. It is an efficacious grace. It works and it wins. One of the hymns that we sung this morning that says we will praise him for a grace and how the author of that hymn understood that there's his salvation was based upon the fact that he was wooed was the word used in the hymn by the Holy Spirit. God drawing the sinner by his grace. It's what Newton meant when he said further on, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace would bring us under a spirit of condemnation and a fear of the just wrath of God. And he would quickly say, and it was the same grace that what? My fears relieved. Anybody want to say hallelujah? Gospel grace not only convicts the sinner of his sin, but also relieves the sinner of his guilt as faith is placed in Christ. But the particular aspect of grace that we will address today is found in another of Newton's lyric. And I think it's what Peter has in mind in the verses that we will read and study. Grace, same grace. Grace hath brought me, grace hath brought me, what? Safe thus far. And the rest of the journey is up to us, right? <laughs> grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So you see, a man like Bradford could watch others march to their fiery death and say, but for the grace of God go I. And indeed, he did go and he went victoriously in the martyr's trail of blood. Paul, James, Peter, the whole testimony of Scripture tells us that the grace of God is something much more than a religious noun somehow to be defined, to be adored. But when you study grace and follow it through all the scriptures, you find it's more of a verb than it is a noun. It is a power more than a thing. It is, in fact, a very active verb, if you will, in the daily life of the child of God. Grace is God's power coming to us. Grace that conquers even our most powerful sins. Grace is power that conquers. Grace is power that also sustains the child of God. When the thorns of life remain, oh, Paul prayed three times, may this annoying thorn, this besetting problem, may it, may it go away. God says, no. But I'll tell you, my grace, you'll find, will be sufficient. My grace shows up best in the midst of your weakness. Grace is a power 
that keeps us clinging to Christ in the midst of life's worst storms. Grace is a power that makes us to persevere in faith. It's a grace that will lead us all the way home. Peter is saying that we cannot afford as children of God in any way to resist the grace of God. That grace which is the perpetual stream that flows from the throne of God. What in our prayers this morning, Brother Bill referred to as a throne of grace in and through our prayers. This Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the one who, quote, is full. A word in the Greek, plethora, full and ever overflowing, full of grace and truth is Jesus Christ. If I were to say to you, how much do you need the grace of God? It would be synonymous with saying you need the grace of God as much as you need Jesus Christ, who said, by the way, without me, you can do how much? Nothing at all. And so every day of our lives, we are to plunge ourselves into the strong currents of God's empowering grace and allow ourselves, as it were, to be carried along into the direction of His will for our lives in all things. For any day or any hour in any day in which I have the joy of saying, I have done the will of God, I will know that I have done the will of God because of a grace working in and through me to do God's own good pleasure. I want you to take a glance uh, at Peter's second epistle. All this time, for many months, we've been in the first letter. Take a glance, at least, at Peter's second epistle and the way it begins. In a sense, I think second Peter begins where the first epistle ends. That's probably why they're, it's a good thing that they're together in the Bible. Let me read for us, as you're looking at it, the introductory first four verses. That's all we'll read of Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter one. Actually, the first uh, three verses will be enough. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now look what he says: grace. And peace be, what? Multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I have sometimes said to people, I have had it said to me over the course of years, in Christ we have all the grace we need. But in some ways I think that's been misunderstood to mean that we got all the grace we need the day we got saved. Well, in a certain sense it's true. But the pledge of Christ is that the grace which saved us will continue to come. And in this case, will even be multiplied so that we can grow in this knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 3 of this Second Peter 1. Seeing, with this grace and peace multiplied, there's a connection. Seeing that His divine power, this multiplied grace in our lives has granted to us, look at this, everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
One translation puts it, everything necessary that I need to live a godly life or to live life itself is to be found in the grace of God multiplied to me through the true knowledge of Him. It's the only place you'll find the grace again. It's in Him who is the fountain, who is the plethora, the full of grace and truth, one Jesus who called us, Peter says, by His own glory and excellence. This is a text that should begin to get us excited. If you've been saved a long time, I know you thank the grace of God for that. But how good it is to hear that there's more grace to come. Grace not just added to us, but a grace multiplied to us. Is it any wonder we are always encouraged in the scriptures in more than one place to quote be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're hearing me, then you'll understand that what I'm seeking to get across is this. Grace is not a something. And it's not just a static thing. There is for the child of God, the Scriptures say, grace upon grace or abounding grace. Grace that grants to us God's own divine power as we've just read, granting us everything necessary for life and godliness. So here's the question for you as we proceed. Would you like more of this grace? There's no question about its availability. It is as endless as Christ is eternal. The question is, how may I have this grace multiplied to me? And it's the concern of our text. It's the concern of Peter. So let's now, it's time to read the actual verses beginning at verse 5, chapter 5 of 1 Peter. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility Toward one another. And then there is this amazing statement. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you begin already to answer the question? How may I have more of this wonderful thing called grace multiplied to me? It won't be in the midst of my asserted pride, will it? In fact, I can't expect God to do a whole lot for me if I take my stand in self-centered pride. But, don't you love the verses that have the word but in them? But, God gives grace to the humble. Does your translation have that phrase in all capital letters? Most of you have that kind of the reason for that is the interpreters and the publishers are trying to say to you, this is an established truth in Scripture. In fact, it goes all the way back to the wisdom of Solomon, Solomon's inspired wisdom. It is a direct quote from the book of Proverbs, chapter three and verse thirty four. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't it interesting that we find that statement of truth? in the midst of God's greatest revelation of wisdom. 
through Solomon. In other words, he's saying uh, you'll get smart if you recognize how essential and indispensable is this grace that you need. If you'll understand that you won't get it when exercising pride, but that God is pleased to give grace to the humble. Therefore, verse six, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, Can I pause here to have you perhaps uh, flash back and remember that we were reading together the example of Christ in his humiliation in coming to earth there in Philippians 2? Do you recall the pattern that Christ set there? How he humbled himself even unto death, even death on a cross, the most shameful kind of death for our sakes. But the Philippians 2 passage said at the end of the cross and through the open tomb came what? The exaltation of Christ so that every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that indeed he is Lord. Jesus humbled Jesus exalted. And Peter is giving us the same pattern. Let us read verse 6 again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may not make you proud, but will definitely exalt you, lift you up. And it will always be at the proper time. I've learned that's a time that he sets, not that I get to set. And then verse 7 really does belong here. The next thing Peter says is casting all your anxiety, your cares on him because he cares for you. But get this much at the outset. The primary answer to the question, how to get more grace, we can hardly miss it. It is the path of humility. Humble yourselves. Humble and humility, the term is repeated no less than three times in the four verses and is particularly inescapable in the last phrase of verse five, as we've said. In fact, again, in capital letters, God gives grace to the humble. Really, this is a big part of the message of the whole Bible, isn't it? God is great. And we are not. God is holy. In fact, we sang holy, holy, holy. We would write a song about ourselves. We'd have to have it say sinful, sinful, sinful. He is holy. We are not. In other words, there are real reasons to be humble. All the scriptures encourage humility. In fact, think about Adam, Eve and the temptation. What was really working there? Satan says, as he excites a sense of pride, God knows if you were to eat from that fruit, why, you wouldn't really need him. You'd be like him. You'd have all the wisdom. You wouldn't need to be dependent on him. If pride, beloved, is the root of all disobedience, and if it brings God's judgment to pass then it stands to reason that humility must be the root of all true godliness 
And in fact, it opens to us the floodgates of God's grace, which we have said we so desperately need. Pride keeps us from Christ, while spirit-wrought humility brings to us, well, the sweet fragrance of Christ, dispensing grace upon grace for all of our need. And it is the source, of course, of all our true joys, but you can't get it while exerting pride. Humble yourselves, Peter says. It's the only way to get the grace you need today and every day. Well, there are at least four things in these four verses which help promote this kind of true humility. And I, of course, want you to see them. I'm going to list them in just a moment. But having read the text, I want you to see much of the same truth related by another of the inspired writers. In this case, I refer to the half-brother of Jesus. And I want you to keep your marker there and turn with me to James at chapter 4, the epistle of James at chapter 4. In the church Bible, it's on page 1210. James in chapter 4. Comparing scripture with scripture is what we're about to do. You know, I think if we were to ask Peter and James, which Old Testament proverb is among their favorites? People ever ask you that, you know, in all the book of Psalms, what's your favorite chapter or what's your favorite verse? I think if we were to ask Peter and James, what's your favorite Old Testament proverb? They would probably both say it's Proverbs 3.34. Peter directly quoted it back there in verse 6 of chapter 5. But listen to this. James 4, 6 through 10, listen to what he writes. But he, verse 6, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, that's like saying, thus saith the Lord, or it is recorded in Scripture. It's the same proverb. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Look at this. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, same words as Peter, in the presence of the Lord. Where else would be a better place to humble yourself than in the presence of the Lord? And look at the same formula that we see in Christ again. He will exalt you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Grace upon grace will flow because God gives grace to the humble. And in due time, he'll lift you up. I've had us turn to this passage because James' lesson about humility and grace focuses a little differently than Peter's. James is focused on the matter of our sin. And may I suggest there's always enough of that working in us to keep us humble, you would think. James would humble us by reminding us that we are sinners. 
We need to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, put away our double-mindedness. You say, what is double-mindedness? It is simply trying to live with one foot in the world based upon its values and the other in God's kingdom, and it doesn't work. By the way, James is saying, you know, there's nothing funny about our sinfulness. Maybe we should learn to weep, he says, more than we laugh. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. I point this out because I do have some concern for too many professing brothers and sisters who seem to be almost oblivious to their need for grace. Oh, they'll talk about the grace that saved them, but having been saved 40 years ago, the word grace too often, I find, doesn't pepper their vocabulary. I have to tell you that, frankly, I'm much more encouraged and I myself am comforted whenever I'm in the presence of those who can somehow freely admit their shortcomings, who will speak of their constant need for cleansing. I'm comfortable in the presence of those who, like me, have a sense of their unworthiness. And of the many ways every single day we still fall short of the glory of God, the Bible's definition for what sin is. I just issue a warning here in passing. If you don't speak much about grace as it relates to your walk with God, the best I can counsel you is that you need to begin to pray for humility. Maybe it's that your sins are somehow the more respectable kind. But it is still sin. And there is no such thing as a true believer who doesn't need grace every moment of every day of their lives. But we must come back to Peter's instruction on how to get more grace. Humility is indispensable to this process. Coming back to 1 Peter 5. Now, the good news is that humility is something, apparently, we can do. Because in verse 6, and it is an imperative, it is a command, he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And what makes these few verses so helpful to us are the practical things that we can do. Surely these are not four easy steps, but they are steps we can take enabled by the very grace that we seek. Should the clock run out on me, it always does. Let me give you the four steps down to humility, or as I like sometimes to say, four steps down to exaltation. He who humbles himself, remember, will be lifted up or exalted in due time. Verse 6 really is saying that the way up in the Christian life is always the way down. Humility. That humbling ourselves leads to God's lifting us up at just the right time. We've got that much. Here are those four steps. I'm going to give them now and then we'll let the clock determine how much we can say under each of the individual points. The four steps to the way up which are steps down. Number one, practice living under authority. 
You'll find that in the first part of verse five. Practice living under authority. Number two, resist comparing and competing with others. It's really the second part of verse five. Resist comparing and competing with others. Number three, antidote to pride. Acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty. Verse six. And then verse seven provides the basis for this exercise of soul. Delight yourself in his care. Delight yourself in his care. I would suggest that if we follow Peter's prescription, then we are enabled by grace itself to humble ourselves and receive yet more grace. Quickly, they are practice living under authority, resist comparing and competing with others, acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty. And number four, delight yourself in his care. Now, in the moments I have remaining, which are not many, I'll try to say one or two things under each of these steps. The first one was practice living under authority. Notice the text says, you younger men, be subject to your elders. Now, in the previous verses, we studied the office of the elder and they are themselves to submit to God's authority. The chief shepherd, remember, and here Peter is saying and everyone else typified by the young men who are not elders at this point, you submit to them. Or let me just say that apparently the the authority issue. Or I could say the matter of submitting is a prolific concern of Scripture. The Bible is clear in delineating to us all kinds of various levels of authority from top to bottom. And in some ways, we all are living under authority. If you don't believe me, try going up and down 776, about 80 miles an hour. You'll soon discover before too long you're a person under authority. But I want to say, if you show me someone, and there are many, are there not? And sometimes it's even me. Show me someone who has a problem with authority, and I'll show you someone who is actually resisting the ultimate authority, which, of course, is God's own authority. Now, there's an expansion upon this in the second part of the same verse there, verse five. In that second point, resist comparing and competing with others. Notice what he says. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. We can do this with the help of God. I was thinking about this. Picture in the mind of clothing, clothing yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, I'd like to believe and I do believe that the Good Shepherd Church is a come as you are church. Suit and tie. OK. Blue jeans. OK. In the summer here in Florida, shorts. Fine. But the question is. Regardless of what you're wearing today, are you really dressed for church? You're not dressed for church, Peter says, until you have covered yourself with humility. 
We are told in the scriptures that we are to esteem. We are to count others as better than ourselves. You know, one thing we Christians are accused of the most beyond being hypocrites, and sometimes our critics are right. We're often accused, are we not, of being a judgmental bunch? But I have to tell you that the basis for any Christian to have some kind of judgmental attitude toward others actually requires that person to think more highly of themselves than they ought. A graceless judgmentalism, what does it breed except self-exaltation? And it is always the enemy of humility. The Bible says the fact is we are all dug from the same pit. And if someone else's weakness isn't yours, or their besetting sin is not yours, or their sin somehow is more visible than yours, learn to say first and always, but for the grace of God, go I. Besides, your sins are just as many. And such ought to be reminded that pride always goes before what? You remember in earlier verses how Peter says, each of us have received a spiritual gift for the benefit of the body of Christ. That was in back back in chapter four at verse 10. He was also careful to say that those spiritual gifts are expressions not of one's own doing, but an expression of the manifold grace of God. Finding our place. In the body of Christ. And I hope you're looking to find your place in the body of Christ. But let me say, especially if your gift is one of those more highly visible gifts, it is yet no cause for pride. The Apostle Paul argued with these words. Who regards you, any one of us, me, you, as somehow superior to any other? What do you have? That you did not receive. Just this very morning, I was talking to a dear sister in the Lord, and I said, I think that your gift is becoming very visible. And she was quick to say, yes, and we know, as she pointed upward, where it comes from. That's the right response. What do we have that we didn't receive? Resist comparing. And above all else, resist competing with others. Just find your place and humbly serve. Number three, acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty in all things. This is the quick cure for most pride. He says in verse six, humble yourselves. Here's the part I want you to emphasize now. The what kind of hand of God? The mighty hand of God. That is to say God's right And God's power to do with you, to do with me. Are you ready? Whatever he pleases. Any child of God who's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that hasn't learned that lesson yet needs to learn it. You are not your own anymore. You never were. 
Before Christ, you belong to the devil. Since Christ, you belong to him. You are not your own, but have been bought with a price. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know what pride is like, I think, and just how foolish a thing it is. Pride is like trying to arm wrestle with God. I, I used to arm wrestle, believe it or not. I used to get into the game with most of the guys and arm wrestling was popular at one time in my youth. I always look for the guy with the skinniest arm. But pride is like trying to arm wrestle with God. This week, as I sometimes do, I'll share some of my sermon preparations with my dear wife, Diane. This is always helpful to me. And so I asked her opinion. I said, honey, the scriptures tell us to humble ourselves. Do you think this is something we can actually do? And she thought for a moment and quite perceptively, she said this, and I think I'm quoting her correctly. Well, one thing's for sure. If we don't humble ourselves, God will do it for us. And I said, been there, done that. In kindness and with gentle irony, Peter encourages Humility here, but reminding us of who God is and just how puny we are. Humble yourself. After all, it is the mighty hand of God who declares his right to do with you, to do with me, whatever he seems best. We are simply too weak and he is too strong to continue in pride. Can I say that again? We are simply too weak and he is too strong for us to foolishly continue in pride. And besides, God gives grace to the humble. We've seen in the text that the mighty hand that humbles us is also the gentle hand that in due time will lift us up. Oh, where did the time go? One more point. Will you allow me that? Delight yourself in his care, we said, verse 7. Delight yourself in his care. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I dare say, as much as we love that verse, we might never have read it any time recently, realizing that Peter's giving it as an antidote to pride in order to promote humility so that we may get the grace we need. This text is too often extracted from its context Even when we do that, it's still a wonderful truth. He cares for us. But every verse in its rightful place or context is even more wonderful than the truth isolated. Peter is teaching what we all learn much too slowly. And we have to relearn it time and again. This is it. Pride will always say, I'd rather do this myself. Or it will be quick to proclaim, I can handle this. The fact is, we do have a whole lot less wisdom than we think. And the fact is, that trying to handle things in our own strength will every time lead to anxiety. It will lead to an anxious state. And grace wants to come to the rescue. 
It wants to meet our overwhelmed, depressed, even frustrated spirit of agitation. And so he says, humble yourself. I know you want to say you can handle it, but I'm telling you, you need to cast all your anxiety on Him. He cares for you. He cares for you infinitely more better than you could ever solve a problem on your own. But that's humbling to have to hear that, don't you think? He really does care for us. And you see, we only dishonor him as our father when in pride we try to carry things that are simply too heavy for us. Just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who reverence him. And I love this. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. It was out of the ground. I'll, I'll leave you with this and I, I will bring it to a close. You know, the word, I love to study the uh, origins of words. And uh, the word humility, I discover, is the same word in its root for human. To be human is to be humble Because we come from, are you ready? Humus. Do you know what humus is? A woman said to me not too long ago, she said, my man, my husband, he's as old as dirt. She was absolutely right. We're all as old as dirt. From the ground we were formed. We were nothing until God breathed into the clay, into those nostrils. It wasn't until then that man became a living soul. Humus, dirt, human, humility. It is a matter of taking our rightful place in the scheme of things. And aren't you glad that he is mindful, that verse in Psalm 103 says, that we are just dust. So often then he will remind us, stop acting so foolishly. You are the clay and I am the potter. I will shape and mold and make that vessel which will bring me the greatest glory. And in that process, with all the cares of life, oh my, I need to humble myself, don't you? In order to receive the grace that God promises to give. Would you stand together with me, please? Thank you for those extra moments. Trust all of these moments have been a Encouragement to your heart. Stand together with me at this time and pray. Heavenly Father, you know that it is the sin of pride that keeps us from experiencing more of your amazing, all-sufficient, empowering grace. Help us to humble ourselves so that we may know what it is to be lifted up by your mighty arm. We have real reasons, every reason to be humble. And we ask you to remind us time and again that without you, we can do nothing. But with you, we can do all things and do them for your honor and for your glory. And now, beloved, you see, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound 
in every good work for his glory. And God's people said, Amen.